Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 855 of the Juicebox podcast. On today's episode of the Juicebox podcast, I'm joined once again by Erica Forsyth. Erica is a licensed marriage and family therapist out of California. She can also see patients right now virtually who live in Utah, Oregon, and Florida. She's adding more states all the time. Check her out at ericaforsyth.com or by calling 626-344-2263. Just a little heads up, uh, you'll see by the title, Eric and I are going to talk about suicidal ideation today and everything that goes around that, how to spot it, what to do, how you might be able to help someone. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Please always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you're a type 1 who is a U.S. resident or a person who is the caregiver of someone with type 1, filling out the survey at t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox will go a long way towards helping type 1 diabetes research. Complete that survey at t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. If you are currently having suicidal thoughts or just want to speak with someone, just pick up your phone and dial 988. That's a suicide and crisis lifeline, 988. You can also look online, samaritanshope.org, or just go to Google and type in suicide help. All kinds of local returns will come up for you. Uh, this episode of the Juicebox podcast doesn't have any ads, but if you're interested in supporting the podcast through one of the advertisers, there are links in the show notes of this episode and at juiceboxpodcast.com to all of the sponsors. Okay. Hello. Hi, Erica. How are you? Hi. Great. Thank you. I appreciate how you. How are you? Oh, I'm already, I just hit record and I'm mm -hmm. already doubting that I should do this. Uh, that, but I know I know I I know I should, and I know it's going to be valuable. But I'm going to get upset at some point while I'm doing this. So um, let me let me lay out how we got here. Um, a lot of people write to me. That's a thing you hear a lot of people say. Um, most of them are probably lying because they're trying to make their social influence seem uh, more powerful. But I get a ton of emails, private messages, so many so that. I mean, I read I read every one of them, but sometimes they'll sit in my inbox for a month before I can get to them. And I got a note from a girl a while back now, and it was pretty long and descriptive, and and um, they wanted to come on the show. They didn't mention any mental health issues, um, but I would say that the letter had some signs of it in there. Uh, sometimes you can kind of tell by the length of the letter or um, details get overshared, things like that. Like I can, I kind of have a, like maybe a half a sixth sense for it. And so I got right back to her and I said, you know, would love to have you on the show. Let's set it up. And then I never, ever heard back from her again. And I mean, like a year went by and then she responded to the email as if I had just sent it like the week before. And we were talking, and, and here was the conversation again. And they were very excited to come on the show. And this time I got her booked onto the show. And it takes about six months after you're booked to get on the show. So about two months before 
about two months before she was supposed to record with me, I got this very strange email from somebody I don't know. And um, it, it became obvious that the person was trying to tell me that their daughter had passed away without using the words. And then as I read a little farther, opened up and said, yeah, she had passed. But then I realized they weren't going to say how. So I was like, oh, okay. And at the end of the note, it said that at, um, at their daughter's uh, funeral, they wanted to take uh, donations for the podcast. And this was at his daughter's behest. And I was just like, I mean, if you could try to imagine, my, my wife and I are sitting in our car outside of a restaurant just waiting for our takeout. You know what I mean? And, <laughs> and, and I'm like, hey, look at this. And I'm reading it. We're both trying to make sense of it. And the gentleman says, leaves his phone number and says, you can call me. And I thought, I said to my wife, I'm like, this is, I don't know what to do about this, but I can't just email back. I don't know what the right thing to say. Like this has to happen conversationally. And so I just called him from the car and he never said how, just that his daughter had passed away that morning. And, and then I started putting it together. Um, and I realized, I think this girl took her own life. And I think I'm in her suicide note. Like, like, you know what I mean? Because you don't mm -hmm. like, and, and I'm obviously making a couple of leaps, but you don't walk into a bedroom and say to your parents, like, Hey, I'm going to go kill myself now. But at my funeral, could you please handle donation? Like, I, so I started right. thinking like, Oh my God, I'm in somebody's like, like last, last, last will and Testament basically, you know? And it freaked me out a, a lot. Um, and I, and I held myself together and I talked to him and he was barely holding himself together. And mm -hmm. I told him I'd get back to him the next day. And so I'm sorry to say that in that moment, I didn't realize that his daughter was the person who I described as the person mm -hmm. I was emailing with at the beginning. And I put a lot of effort into it. I asked people online, Jenny and I talked privately and I ended up giving him three um, places. I said, look, I can't take donations from from this i was like but here's i gave him touch by type one i said this is an organization that helps children i gave him diabetes sisters is an organization that helps women and uh, we are diabetes mm -hmm. uh, for eating disorders and things like that um and i was like these are three places i think would be very valuable and you know i can't like i would never i said i'm not a i'm not a charity i'm like i don't mm -hmm. even know what i would do with money if it came like, you know, I'm not going to take, but, but he, but he kept saying, but my daughter wants you to have it. And I was like, I can't take it. Like, I just can't, you, you know? And so mm -hmm. we, we set this up. Everybody was okay with it. Like two days later, my cell phone, I'm sitting right here and my cell phone rings and I don't recognize the number and I pick it up and there is a crying woman on the phone before she says, hello, she's, she's crying. Mm -hmm. but she's also doing the dishes. So I can hear someone crying and doing dishes at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, Oh God, this is this girl's mom. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it is. She's got my number because I called her husband and we just stayed on the phone for maybe 20 minutes. She described what the podcast meant to her daughter, how much it had helped her through her life. And uh, told me that 
never, never used the word suicide, never said took her own life. She didn't use those words. We all, it was spoken around the entire time. And, um, and, uh, she just thanked me and then asked me if I had any insight about her daughter. And I told her that I would be happy to share the emails that she sent me. And I, I sent them back to her and I've never, I've never heard from them again. Um, I did tell the woman, like, I was like, if you ever want to come on the podcast and speak about your daughter, you know, eulogize or memorialize or anything at all, like you could, I took from the conversations that she had a lot of different problems. Some were physical and some were mental and that she'd really succeeded through her life. She'd, I think, become a nurse and like done a number of things, gone to school the way she meant to. I hope I'm not misspeaking about what she accomplished, but she'd gone to school. She was working towards, she had a life, you know? Um, but the mom said something uh, and I'm not going to get it right word for word, but I'm never going to forget the intent of what she said is um, this was always how it was going to end. She said, I've been waiting for this for a long time. Oh. And I thought, and again, not, not her exact words, but I think, I think it was, I think what she said word for word, as close as I can get to it is we always knew this was going to happen. So I'm assuming there were fits and starts and, Attempts mm -hmm. and things like attempts. that along the way. And so I, of course, not to make this about me, because it certainly isn't. I want to shine a light on this and, and help people understand how to um, identify suicidal thoughts, how you can mm -hmm. help people with them, et cetera. But mm -hmm. just telling you the story, because that's why the episode exists. I, I, I was, I, I don't know anybody who's suicidal, I don't think. And then it made me think, or do I? And I don't know. Because mm -hmm. this girl did not seem suicidal in these emails. She just seemed a little, I don't know, all over the place a little bit, but not not in a way that would have put up a red flag for me, you know, <laughs> certainly. Um, anyway, I, I just want to help people uh, recognize it in others and know where to go next. Mm -hmm. So if you could mm -hmm. help me with that, that'd be great. Yes. Well, yeah, it's obviously a tragic story. And such a painful and sensitive topic. Um, and I know that our our community responded as well. There was an outpouring of of love and support for this um, this woman. Um, so I think one of the the main things is often you as you were sharing just through the email, we might not notice any significant red flags. You hear a lot of, family members talk about when their child um, dies by suicide, which I just want to note, it's, we really don't want to say committed suicide anymore as if it's like they committed a, a crime. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, died by suicide. Okay. Okay. Um, and so they, they reflect back and say, gosh, we really didn't even notice any signs. Maybe they were sad at some certain moments. Um, there was, you know, irregularity in their uh, emotional regulation or their, their functioning. Um, and that might feel scary, but some things that we, that you can do that one of the myths out there is that we don't want to ask if someone's suicidal or if they have any thoughts about suicide that maybe in so doing that might plant a seed, but that's actually a really false myth. And so by simply asking, Hey, I noticed you've been down or sad for a while, or you don't just seem yourself? Have you been thinking about wanting to harm yourself? Have you been thinking about killing yourself? That 
that is disclosing and showing them that a, you care, you see them. It is not planting a seed. And, and if they say no, that's also great because then they know maybe if they do ever start to feel that way, they know that you're a safe person mm -hmm. to come to. So simply just by asking is not going to plant a seed and it's showing them that you care, you notice, and you're, and you're safe. Right. Um, yeah, I, I've, I've wondered about that because even with a lot of parenting or, or issues or friend, you know, even like personal relationships, it, it is difficult to say the thing out loud. Is mm -hmm. this what's happening? Are you cheating on me? Are you like, you know what I mean? Like, like that kind of stuff. And there are people who will live their entire lives wondering about something never saying it out loud and maybe a it's not true and you've made yourself worried about it for no reason or b it is true and you could have maybe made your situation better um but the fact of the matter isn't going to change whether you say it out loud or not so you might as well right yes yeah. and i it it is it can be so scary to say and obviously as a clinician i am trained and i've practiced and it's it's i'm more comfortable doing it and so as i coach parents to do this I know it, there is that moment of it's it's fearful. It, it can be scary, um, but it is not it is not what you think it's going to do. It's not going to plant the seed. And I know a lot of people might also not want to ask the question because then they feel like, "Well, am I responsible? What if they do say yes? Mm -hmm. And now am I responsible to make them feel better or to care for them?" And you are you are not. You are then well, you're responsible at that point to get them, you know, to a trusted adult to call. You know, depending on the the severity of the situation, nine one one, nine eight eight, which is the national suicide line. Um, but you're not you yourself are not responsible to save them and, and make them feel better. Right. You're that kind of first line of defense, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I I would say that um, I, I understand the fear. If you've never been in that situation, it's not something you'll get ready for. I've I've been in it one time. And I certainly won't share anybody's personal details, but as I was heading to the place where this person was, I called a friend of mine who's a police officer and I said, I'm about to walk into this situation and I don't know what to do. And, and he said, okay, he goes, well, just, he's like, you're going to have to assess what's happening. He's like, is it something that's just being said out loud? Is it they're distraught about something because they, you know, something happened? Or is this a real thing? Is it ongoing? And then you need, he's like, he's like, then there's this important part. It's interesting. I never thought about it. He goes, you want to get this person to go seek help on their own. And I said, why? And he said, well, most of the time this works out. And I said, okay. And he goes, but if you have to be taken in by force, it changes a lot about how the rest of your life goes. And I said, really? And he said, he said, from owning a firearm to like a number of different things, he said, he's like, he's like, if you can get this person to go on their own. And when I got there, all I knew for sure is that I didn't understand how this person felt and they did not seem to be the best arbiter of the next thing that happened to them. And so I made this description. I said, look, I was told if you go get help, you're probably going to be okay. And later you're going to really be happy that you did this on your own. Mm -hmm. And um, they did that. They were assessed by a professional, came home, were okay, made up an appointment with a therapist. See a therapist now are doing very much better. But had that 
had that moment boiled over and somebody would have called a cop, it would have changed their life forever. And, uh, I, and, and even that's got to be in people's minds, right? Because like, am I going to do something? Is this a momentary thing? And I'm going to this person up, you know, for the rest of their life. Um, I can see why people would be concerned about what to do next afterwards. Yes. Yes. And I, for sure. Yeah. The sense of responsibility. Am I going to change the course of their whole entire life? If I feel like I need to make this call because they aren't responding. Um, I think it's really important for for you as the person who's, you know, attending to someone who is severely depressed or suicidal is to give them that sense of control. Mm -hmm. Like let them decide if they're, if you feel like they truly can, Hey, what, what do you need from me right now? Do you need me to stay here and, and maybe elicit the help of other family and friends to take shifts? Do you need me to call you every day? What, what would be good for you at this moment? Yeah. Um, check-ins, all that type of stuff. Well, Okay, so the the thing that ha- that I was involved in was was sprung on me. I didn't know it was happening. You know, an hour before I was there, I was I was doing the dishes. If I'm being honest, and so, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but if if I'm if I'm in a home with someone who I think feels this way, now I've because we've we've gone over. You can ask somebody. You know, how do you feel? So what are we what are we looking for exactly? Like the NIH says that warning signs of suicide are if someone is talking about wanting to die talking about great guilt or shame, talking mm-hmm. about being a burden to others, that those things can be indicators. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. If they talk about feeling empty, hopeless, trapped, or having no reason to live, if they mm-hmm. talk about feel, if they have feelings of extreme sadness, uh, more anxiety, agitation, or a full range, or a full rage, excuse me, um, and then an unbearable emotional or physical pain. If they feel that way. Now, they also say to look for ch- change in behaviors, making a plan or researching ways to die, withdrawing from friends, saying goodbye, giving away important items or making a will, taking dangerous risks such as driving extremely fast, displaying mm-hmm. extreme mood swings, eating or sleeping more or less, using drugs or alcohol more often than you would be uh, uh, um, expecting from them. You agree with all mm-hmm. that? Yes. Is there yes. anything to add to it? Well, I think one thing that might get confusing for people, you know, the extreme sadness or the, even the suicidal ideation, mm-hmm. I think can be confusing. And a lot of, you know, websites and any, if you Google, you know, suicidal ideation, there's a lot of TED Talks on this as well, because a lot of people who are depressed, and and I hear this in my office as well, it's kind of like a release valve for them to say, I don't want to kill myself. But sometimes it just feels easier to envision myself not being alive or just things might be easier if I didn't have to feel this pain, this weight. And so they're, they're thinking about it, but not, they don't have means or a plan, right? That's, those are the questions you'd follow up with. Mm -hmm. If someone says, yes, I have been thinking about not wanting to live, then you would say, well, do you have means? Meaning, have you, do you have tools? How are you going to do this? And then a plan. Now, most of the time people will say, no, I don't have means or a plan and they ideate and it's, it's really not, there's not, it's not an active mm-hmm. thought. It's more of a passive release I was, kind of So release, release is the word I was going to use. So if you were trapped in a situation, say I take a perfectly healthy, jovial person and I lock them in a box and at some point they're going to think, 
I have to kill myself to get out of this because there's no way for me to get out of this. So that box could be an overbearing parent. It could be an abusive spouse. It could be a situation that they can't find another way out of. And Mm -hmm. so they're not people who in any normal situation, is that what you're saying, would consider ending their life? It's just the only thing they can can think of, conceive. The only thing they can think of or and and the experience that, that their lived experience for the the day, the season, it feels so overwhelming that they feel like the only way to have any kind of relief from the okay. physical and emotional pain is to envision them not being alive. And so it's more of a um yeah, the release is really the best word yeah. f- from that current lived experience, but they aren't saying, well, but now I'm going to go do this and this and this to actually make that happen. Yeah, but just ex- just imagining it puts their puts their brain in a place where they don't exist in the world anymore, and therefore all this anxiety and pressure and stress they feel doesn't exist either. Yes. It's a way to make it go away. Yes, is it yes. The, is that the, if I'm wrong about this, you'll stop me, but... I only know enough about this from talking to other people who have gone through these things. But is that sort of the intellectual exercise that would be the physical equivalent of cutting? Like to like to interesting. You see what I say? I mean by that? Maybe I'm wrong. Yes, I mean I wouldn't make that like a total equal comparison, but yeah, I mean I think that helps kind of understand the concept. Right, you're going to do something so bombastic that it just everything. All the feelings go away, and you can just feel yourself being hurt at that moment. Right, 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 right. right. Which doesn't work, um, by the way. Like it just it works. That's why cutters describe how often they have to do it because the release and the relief is only momentary for them. And then usually, what ensues is shame after that. Whereas I'm not sure, you know, that 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 release of thinking about not being alive, if shame follows that. So there might be different patterns after okay. that kind of experience. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I think that's a, that's it's, an interesting comparison. And again, yeah. I interviewed a few people who mm-hmm. have like mm-hmm. involved themselves in self-harm somehow and they all seem to when they're on the other side of it, they seem to talk about it that way a little bit. So And I I think yes, I mean the the list that you just described is is comprehensive um and I think what keeps a lot of that hidden is shame. Um I think one of the things I just heard this great example of thinking about yourself as a student in junior in you know elementary school high school even college and the teacher has explained something over and over and over again and you still aren't understanding it and you know you want to raise your hand you want to ask the question um but you're kind of embarrassed to raise your hand maybe you feel like you're the only one who doesn't understand the concept so you don't raise your hand and this the same thing applies for someone who is who is suicidal, is there's so much shame? Am I the only one who feels this way? And so they aren't raising their hand for help. And so by you taking kind of the heavy lift and taking that initiative mm-hmm. of saying, hey, I notice you just don't, it could be very simple. You just don't seem yourself. Have you been thinking about hurting yourself, harming yourself, killing yourself? You are doing that you are raising the hand for them because they might be trapped in a lot of shame and feelings of isolation. Okay. And it's important to be very clear when you, I'm, you I, I see you using the same words over and over again, not uh-huh. don't, don't dance around it. Don't no euphemisms. Like, are you thinking of harming yourself, killing yourself? Like be clear. Yes. Yes. Is it reasonable to expect that if they do feel that way, that they will tell you? 
I think, I mean, typically in my experience, people do, and then they will clarify. And then, so if they do say, well, yeah, actually I kind of have, then they'll, then you can ask those further questions. Like we just said around, well, do you have a, have you thought about how you would do it? You don't have to say means and plan. That's kind of clinical language, but have you thought about how you would kill yourself? And you're using that specific language because they, they know that you are taking them seriously and they, in that process, they feel validated, heard, mm-hmm. taken care of, all of those things. And so then they will help kind of, they'll differentiate that for you by saying, well, yeah, I, I have, and I have these things or no, it's just kind of this idea that I'm feeling so overwhelmed. I kind of not, I don't want to be alive right now. And am I right to say that um, a person with suicidal ideation or thoughts, they don't have to be depressed. And like depressed people don't, that being depressed doesn't necessarily make you suicidal and being suicidal doesn't necessarily make you depressed. Correct. Because you can, I mean, obviously they they go hand in hand often, Mm -hmm. but there's, uh, there's so many different levels of depression and you might be a fully healthy functioning adult and have a really hard day maybe multiple days in a row and feel like, ah, I just don't want to be here right now. I wish I could not be living at this moment and have that fleeting thought. When we were first married, my wife worked at a company who um, brought uh, a very popular um, antidepressant medication to market. And so my wife would come home and say, hey, we're seeing in the data that sometimes there are suicidal people who are so deeply depressed that they can't even work up the energy to hurt themselves. And then they took the medication and the medication lifted enough of the, of the, of the weight that they could actually harm themselves. They were seeing people like, does that make sense that they were, they were so chained down by their depression. They could, they, they wanted to end their life and they couldn't. And then the medication would take away enough of it that they could go try to harm themselves. And that was obviously, I think, unexpected in the beginning when these drugs were being looked at. Mm, um, yes, that that is, I have I have heard of that, and I also have heard of when you start medication, that why they say wait for three or four weeks for any kind of change to take effect, because oftentimes people who are experiencing depression and start taking medication, they have so much hope in the medication, and then they don't feel any change quickly or quickly enough that or within their expectations that then is when maybe the suicidal ideation becomes more severe and there are more attempts so that's why it's like you know we really want to emphasize it finding the right dose and medication takes time mm-hmm. and to be patient with that the idea of like well this is going to do it for me and then it doesn't and then then, then that, that, all that hope was, is lost yeah, that, that, was, that, that yeah was there the, was the straw that broke the camel's back you're like well if this isn't going to work i'm out of here Yes. That's so crazy. Mm -hmm. What are the numbers? Do you know them? Like how many people do this a year? I don't know. I know the, I know that seven per, this was a couple of years ago. I don't know the actual exact year, but 7% of the population have identified as being depressed. I don't know the numbers of suicidal attempts. I'm looking here. Um, Or death by suicide. Um, But I think that the depression is it's so common, but we you know it, everyone has their their fear and shame to talk about it. 
AFSP.org is American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. On their front page, they said suicide is the 12th leading leading cause of death in the U.S. In 2020, 45,979 Americans were successful in their attempt. Um, 1.2 million tried. That's a, that's, wow. that's an astonishing thing. Um, the rate of suicide. That was 2020? 2020. Additional mm-hmm. facts about suicide in the U.S., the age-adjusted suicide rate in 2020 was 13.4 per 100,000. The rate of suicide is highest in middle-aged white men. Uh, in 2020, men died by suicide 3.88 times more than women did. On average, there are 130 a day. White males accounted for 69.68% of deaths in 2020. And it looks like in 2020, over 50% where um, a handgun was involved, a firearm was involved. Mm-hmm. Um, that's wow. that's really something. Uh, yeah. And and from my pers- again, from my perspective, I've never known anyone personally uh, who's who's done this or tried it. Um, I've known a person who's obviously spoken about it in in a in a, in a tense situation, and I have this um, experience with the listener. And, and her family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I don't know what it's like to be her parents, but but I am pretty far outside of this girl's sphere. And I was really, really impacted by it. Mm-hmm. It, it mm-hmm. stuck with me for quite some time. Um, it made, and I can see where the feelings come from because I the first thing I thought was, and this is ridiculous, right? But had I got her on the podcast sooner, like maybe we would have talked about something that, and I'm sure everyone feels like that. The, when, the bargaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like maybe I could have helped. Meanwhile, that's ridiculous. What the hell was I going to do for her? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know her. I don't know her life. Um, and, 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 and I'm not, I'm not trained in any way. You know what I mean? Like, but I, I still had that, that silly idea. I can't imagine that her parents must feel that, you know, every second, like, what did I not do? Or, mm-hmm. um, and, and so what happens then, if you're, if you find yourself in this situation, someone is able to help you. You do get to help. Um, is that I hear people talk about being scared of the help too, though, and uh, and, and a little bit of the um, the cost. I hear people worried about the cost, the help. They say there's no good facilities around them. Then you hear people who have been in the system, and it's difficult to find good facilities. Is is there a way to help yourself in that? to go in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, those are all significant and valid concerns. The costs, you know, if, do you want to be an inpatient care, outpatient care? Um, One of, depending on, you know, your insurance and your ability to, to pay for treatment, one of the best things I know that help people who are severely depressed and, and in the suicidal space is giving giving them a purpose to get up every day because perhaps at that point they've lost the ability um, to to function to go to go to work to get up and take a shower and so there are you know treatment facilities that aren't necessarily fully inpatient or, or fully outpatient but you go just for the day and part of the the intervention and the kind of reward of that is you have to, you have to get up, you have to show up at 9am and you're there, you're accountable, you're learning, you're also being exposed to community. 
and you come back. So that's a kind of a good middle space if if going into a full inpatient treatment facility doesn't feel appropriate for all of the reasons, emotional, financial, um, because it's it's that finding that purpose. And if it's just to get up and get out of bed and report to a support group every day for a certain amount of weeks, yeah. you 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 receive so much out of that. Right. Um I think one of the fears of a family member who has who was trying to support someone who is severely depressed is that they they might not want it, right? They there's resist they are resisting. They're saying that they're not going to to kill themselves, but they also don't want to go to any treatment facility mm-hmm. or they don't want to go to therapy and they don't want to take medication. And if you are feeling trapped in that place, I know it can be so overwhelming and isolating. Um, but if you get to the point where, you know what, I need to help my family member and they're going to be mad at me, but they're going to be alive. And so getting to that place of, I need to find the right support, whatever it is, if it means having a family intervention, Mm -hmm. friends coming over and that, and that family member is going to be mad at you because you've exposed them to get to a place of being okay with them being mad at you for that, because they're still going to be alive. Yeah. It's, it's the, um. It's funny. It's the one instance when I can think it's okay to ignore their wishes, right? Because because the end result is is so finite. You know, if you anything else, I could see if they were like, I drink too much, you're like, oh, or maybe they'll work it out. If you know they, that, you can say, all right, me, because there's another day. There's another possibility of being hopeful and finding another answer. But when when the idea is this, there's there's nowhere to go from there. It's um. Do you think? Uh, I don't know what the question is. I guess in your personal like experience, do people who identify these things and seek treatment, do they end up with a different reality later? Do they often get through it? Well, I would say, you know, the people who I see are either, they aren't at that. I don't see people who are at the severe clinical mm-hmm. stage of depression who need this, you know, more intense either inpatient or daily treatment. Um, so the the people that I interact with more might be, you know, grieving from a, a newly diag- diagnosis, right, of diabetes, and they're feeling so overwhelmed by all of the things. And that's when I hear pretty frequently those feelings of, gosh, I just, it's so hard to juggle family and work and now having to figure out this diabetes for myself or my child. And there are days where I just feel like I don't want to be here mm-hmm. and life would just be easier if I, if I didn't have to face all this. Um, and so I associate that, you know, technically it is ideation, but that's connected with grief and kind of the shock of all of it. And so yeah. working through all of the emotional, the, the grieving from the, the diagnosis is relieved. The ideation is relieved as we process the diagnosis and the grief, if that makes sense. No, it does. And it's, so there is hope. Yes. <laughs> but I just think that most people listening to this are going to, if they, if they intersect this, it's going to be more on that level. Like, I don't think that if you're, if you have a loved one who's institutionalized and, you know, like, and is on, I, I don't think this is, uh, they, you probably would have stopped listening to this a while ago. So, I mean, it's, it, this is for people who find themselves with a new situation that people respond to sometimes in the way you described are offhanded like like what about offhanded jokes like when you um 
I, I mean, I have my opinion. I want to hear what you think. Like if you, if somebody says like, oh, my teacher gave me a B, I'm going to kill myself. And you're mm-hmm. being, that's, that's not a, that's not the same thing, right? That's a colloquialism. Yes. Yeah. And I, yes. And I hear that, you know, and I, um, I'm sensitive to it in the, in the fact that yes, it's a colloquialism. It's a like, ugh, I'm so frustrated with myself. Um, and so if I'll hear a client or a child say that, I'll say, Hey, let's, let's just choose a different word. I mean, you know, I'm not, not overly do it in terms of having a conversation. Do you, do you really want to kill yourself? I mean, obviously I would do that if I saw some other signs and symptoms, Yeah, but let's just choose another word. Like, Oh, I'm so frustrated with myself. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, but it is, it's a very, listen, it's an incredibly common thing. Like people say that, I mean, people who are not suicidal and not depressed, just, they say it like it's a, like it's a silly thing. And so, but I'm, my point mm-hmm. is, is if your kid's walking through the room and they're like, I got to be on this, I'm going to kill myself. Like, like, do you have to turn to them and say, are you really having like, do you know what I mean? Like, where's the line? And, and I guess that's for everyone to decide, you know, like, where is like, when is somebody being flippant and somebody really having thoughts like that and is 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 the flippancy happening over and over again is that is that an indicator like is that person trying to say something to you or are they really just a person with what you might consider a wide open sense of humor and Mm -hmm. a a dark sense of humor but they don't have any thoughts like that i i would look at if that was my child saying that over and over again i would look at you know, the context and how are they functioning? How, how are their friendships? How are they doing in school? Are they, mm-hmm. are they saying, are they stopping doing things that used to find pleasure in or enjoyment in, um, or are they things. still, are they still quote normal yeah. functioning? Um, I would just remind them, let's choose a different word. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also something just to be, you know, gut checking yourself yeah. and saying, gosh, they are saying this a lot. And I also noticed that he's sleeping more or she's deciding not to play tennis anymore or whatever. Yeah. 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 No, to find the, to find the, is this just a thing and there's no thread to something else? Or am I like, do I, can I step back, see the big picture and notice, wow, not only am I hearing this, but I do see some of these other things that we listed earlier. Um, And there's, there's nothing wrong in asking. There's, as we already said in the beginning, like you, by asking your child or family member, are you thinking about, really killing yourself? Are you thinking about harming yourself? And they say, no. Okay. Now they know you, you, you're, you're, you're an open family member to talk about it. If mm-hmm. they do ever feel like that. Yeah. And you might end up in another situation helping them. I'll tell you the, yes. the person that I had my interaction with, um, thanks me like every couple of months, just, I'll just get like a random note says, I appreciate what you did that day. And you know, I'm doing well and that kind of stuff. So, and it, it's just, a and it was in a situation where I noticed that a lot of other people were like, well, let's just be done with this person. Like, it's enough already. And pe- and, and people, like, got frustrated. And I just, I was the opposite. I thought, well, we're not going to quit on this, right? This would be a silly time to, like, give up here. Um, so, I don't know. There's just a lot of intricacies, especially within families. And, you know, like, there's, a, there's politics in families. You don't even like probably think of it that way, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, but. Well, know. and I think, yeah, that the, what you just said, you know, people kind of giving up on someone or maybe like, oh, this is just, you know, Bobby being Bobby, you know, he's mm-hmm. just got to get over it. Well, I just heard, um, I think Bill, Bill Burnett just saying um, the, the, la- the 
depression is the lack of ability to get over it. <laughs> and so they have someone who is clinically depressed um, has probably tried to get over it and isn't able to get over it. Yeah. And so it's, it's a real true thing. And so by, by going there and, you know, using you talking to them in a normal voice, connecting, seeing them for who they are as human beings and not mm -hmm. seeing them as this, you know, sick, scary person, I think is also really important. I've had a number of meaningful life altering relationships through this podcast by taking on people to come on the show to talk about things that most people would not have talked about. And I've seen their lives change. I've seen, I understand better. I get a note online from a, one of, from a, from a person who's been on this podcast. They send me about one a year and it just says, when did you know I'm doing well? This is my A1C. If I respond, they will not respond back to me. Mm -hmm. But this person just reaches out to me about once a year to let me know they're doing okay. Mm -hmm. And um, and I can see why people wouldn't, why, why you'd be afraid to get involved because I also have an experience where someone, there was a, cl a clear cry for help in the Facebook group and everyone tried to help this person. So there's this kind of like, they run into the group, there's a cry for help post, then they don't respond. And you, you're trying to decide like, is this, are they, is it just attention seeking? Like, what is this exactly? Right. And so you don't want to make the decision. You don't want to just brush it off as attention seeking, because what if they really need the help? But mm -hmm. a lot of people tried to help. They were actually able to contact people in this person's extended family. Like you, if you know what I'm talking about, like this, yes, this whole I do. thing went mm -hmm. that way. Mm -hmm. But there was a moment where I couldn't let these attention seeking posts happen anymore. So I stopped, I blocked the person from being able to post. But I didn't just block them and walk away. I sent them mm -hmm. a private email and I said, I don't know you. I don't know your situation, but I do understand diabetes and I can help you if you want. We can sit and talk privately. I'll call you on the phone, whatever you need. Ignored me, ignored me, ignored me. And then an email comes back. Everyone always says they're going to help me and no one does. And blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. So I responded back one more time. I said, well, I am telling you I will. I don't know for sure if I can help, but I'm happy to talk to you. And then it was vitriol back at me again. And I went, okay, well, now we're done. Okay, so mm -hmm. like I've tried, I've tried. I don't know you. You you seem like you just want this dance to keep going. Mm -hmm. I can't fix that for you. That's a hard thing. So I stopped answering. And then that person went around on social media and tried to like hit me every place they thought they publicly could. And I put a stop to all of that. And so... Do I wish I didn't try to help that person? A little bit. I do wish I didn't do that, right? Mm -hmm. But I think back on the others where I took that chance and it went really well. And I guess I thought, well, this is the this is the price of doing business, right? If I'm gonna if I'm gonna help somebody, it's not always gonna work out, right? So mm -hmm. and all. and they, you know, at that point. She wasn't ready to receive it. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there's complete right. possibility. They For might, all the reasons. Oh, my God. They might send a note six months from now and be like, hey, I'm so sorry. I should have said, yeah, let's chat. I wasn't in that right place. Or maybe it's an internet troll. Like, I have no way to know, you know. So, um, but in your real life, there's, you will not be let down if you try to help somebody. I, that's mm -hmm. from my perspective. It, it will, it will help them and, and it'll help you too. So. Yes. Anyway. Is there anything yes. we're and missing here? I'm sorry, I cut you off. No, I was going to say, I think 
it, it will. And that piece, I think, I know I already mentioned it, but I think it's so, it's such a huge factor in why people might hesitate in asking the question because of that fear of, I don't know, what do I, what do I do? I'm just a person. I'm not a trained therapist or doctor. What do I do? This sense of feeling of either inadequate or like, what do I, I have to be responsible and just, I just encourage you, if you have those thoughts, don't let those, you know, stop you from just reaching out because just that very, that the act of asking if someone's okay is going to, will be a lifeline for them. Yeah. You know, we Mm -hmm. didn't talk too much about though. Like, what if we're on the other side of that? What if we're not the person trying to help? Like, what if we're the person in, in trouble? Are they able to make that leap normally or do they need someone to come get them? I think, you know, if, if someone's already in therapy, I'm thinking of just my, you know, personal examples. Um, that's part of my questioning if I am noticing some depressive symptoms. So it's, it's kind of an automatic conversation. I think if it's a family member and you're sitting there and you're the one who is suffering and dealing with some of these thoughts and feelings, I think it's really hard to reach out because depression is so connected to feelings of shame, Mm -hmm. which then leads to feelings of isolation and no one else feels this way. No one's going to understand. No one's going to get me. And no one knows what this feels like. Those types of thoughts are really common. So when you're, when you're swimming in that pool of shame, it's really hard to say, Hey, can somebody help? I'm reaching my, can somebody help me here? I'm, I'm really drowning. Um, because the shame really prevents them from doing that. No, this is not all, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think often people do need someone else to ask, how are you doing? Yeah. I was really interested by the breakdown of the male to female, because I, I generally think of men as people who are more willing to ignore those cues and just push forward. But obviously the numbers kind of say opposite, like maybe that, Maybe pushing through is is stuffing down, not 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 lurching forward all the time. I mean, obviously for some people it's different, but that threw me off the the breakdown mm-hmm. of the numbers a little bit. I don't know why exactly. Stuff stuffing down, and then I think what we were talking about on the, the other episode about the shame mm-hmm. that perhaps there's stereotypically in a in a male mindset. I got to be macho. I got to keep it all together. I get all of my, um, I feel good about myself, about what I do, my work, my family, these are all stereotypes, obviously. Um, and so when a male might be struggling with depression, the shame is just right there. Hmm. I should, I should not be feeling this way. I should be providing for myself or my family. How yeah. can I be stuck here in bed all day? Right. I'm, I'm a bad person. Well, yeah. All, all I can tell you is that having kids, you just, you're always looking at them like assessing things they're assessing their health and their happiness and the things they are saying and the things they aren't saying and what are they doing and who are they around? And it's just, I don't know. Like I understand how it could be overwhelming to a person from the outside, but if you're seeing these things, obviously, if you don't know what to do, find somebody that does know what to do. Um, I'll put, I'll bookend this episode with like phone numbers and and websites and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, um, the, the last thing I'll tell you about the person from my story at the beginning is that uh, one of the last things her mom said on the phone 
uh, when I said, you know, you can, you can come on the podcast if you ever want to, like, I, I didn't know, like, you know, it's a weird thing to say to somebody, but she felt like she wanted to talk about her daughter. And she said, I said, just reach out to me when the time feels appropriate. And she said, you're going to have to reach out to me because I don't think I'm going to remember this day. She said, it made me sad. Mm. And, um, and I don't have the nerve to reach out to her. I, I and, and I can't decide if I'm letting her down by not doing that or not. Like, does she really want me to? I don't want to be, do you know what I mean? Like, I don't want her to do this if she doesn't want to. And I, and I don't know. I'm lost as to what to do about that at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, she can always say no. Mm-hmm. And you could always say, right. I, no I, I was hesitating to reach out, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I might, because I feel like I promised her that I was going to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it is, it is hard and painful and, I think if you if you are listening to this and feeling those feelings, you know, reach out. Nine eight eight is the is the easiest thing to remember, or mm-hmm. you can plug it into your phone and save it because um, those are they're twenty four seven, three sixty five. Someone a mental health professional is there to talk. You can also text. Yeah, I think too. Mm-hmm. If you if something like this has happened and you're left behind, I think you probably should seek out, you know, help as well, right? Because I, yes, I don't yes. see, I mean, we, I, I think anybody who has kids has spoken about this back and forth, right? Like, if something happened to my kids, it wouldn't have to be, uh, you know, a suicide even, just anything. Like, I don't, like, I'm I'm really impressed by people who go on after they lose their children. Yeah. You know? Um, so, anyway, just, anyway, uh, find help, you know? That's mm-hmm. pretty much what I wanted to mm-hmm. do. I appreciate yeah. you doing this very much. Am I leaving anything yes. out? No, I, th- I think we've covered, we've covered it. Okay. Thank you. No, thank you. Once again, if you're having any suicidal thoughts or considerations around hurting yourself, please dial 988 or go to SamaritansHope.org. I want to thank Erica again and remind you that if you live in California, Utah, Oregon, or Florida... Erica can help you at ericaforsyth.com, or you can give her a call at 626-344-2266. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Diabetes Sisters, they offer a range of education and supportive services to help women of all ages with all types of diabetes to live fuller, healthier lives. DiabetesSisters.org. Of course, if you're a listener, you know Touched by Type 1. They are a podcast sponsor and a, a longtime favorite of mine. TouchedbyType1.org. And We Are Diabetes at WeAreDiabetes.org. We help people living with type 1 diabetes and disordered eating. We are diabetes.org.